Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and holy crap, this is our 100th episode. My guest for this special Friday show is Daniel Worth, a filmmaker bringing his terrific feature debut, Dim the Fluorescence, to the Slamdance Film Festival this very weekend. It's a comedy drama starring Claire Armstrong and Naomi Squirna as industrial performers chasing their big break, and it has its world premiere at 9.30 p.m. Saturday, January 21st in the gallery, with a second screening Tuesday, January 24th at 6 p.m. in the ballroom. Why am I being so specific? Well, if you happen to be listening to this on a treadmill somewhere in Park City, take my advice and book a ticket. Daniel went for Love Streams, John Cassavetti's deeply emotional and deeply weird 1984 adaptation of Ted Allen's stage play about two adult siblings, Robert, played by Cassavetes himself, and Sarah, played by Cassavetes' wife, Jenna Rollins, who live in constant states of chaos that only seem to abate when they're together. Made after Cassavetes was diagnosed with terminal cirrhosis, it's a film steeped in illness and melancholy and uncertainty, as well as Cassavetes and Rollins' trademark eccentricity. And if you've never seen it, why are you still listening? Go get the Blu-ray and live in it for a night, because there's nothing else quite like it. Oh, one other thing. There was some construction happening outside the studio when we recorded this, so every now and then you might hear some machine noise or some shouting in the background. I've dropped it down as best I can, but if you find it distracting, just know that it'll stop in a few seconds. And actually, the chaos kind of supports the whole Cassavetes thesis. This is someone else's movie. It almost wasn't my pick, and, and it was I, my first thought was Days of Being Wild because I love that movie, oh, yeah. and I feel like people don't talk about it very much. But I was, you know, I've never done something like this before, so I was trying to think of a movie that's very dense so that we wouldn't run out of things to talk about. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, and it's just, it's, I don't know, there's so much in that film that is very strange, and I feel like you can unpack just the first 20 minutes for a long time, so I, I thought it was safe. Yeah, that's <laughs> I mean, love streams. It is like Cassavetes films historically bustle with life. I mean, there's stuff going on all mm-hmm. the time, but with love streams, it does feel like he's crammed in every half, every half formed idea, every notion. There's there's stuff going on beyond the frame constantly, and yeah, that first that first reel is a whirlwind of activity that has almost no bearing on what comes next, except that it does it inform everything informs us as to the personalities even if it's not directly servicing the plot i suppose yeah the plot such as it is i mean it's quite an erratic one in a great way i think like all of them do that that this i think but the feeling of um form and content kind of being perfectly married Mm -hmm. really works for me in this film like the way that it's bifurcated and you don't even know their relationship until they're reunited. Oh, yeah, and even after that, it's another half hour. Yeah, it's another half hour before you know... Well, it's it's an hour before you know they know each other. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it's another half hour before you know how they know each other, right? And it kind of... It, there's all these things in the movie where someone decides to do something and then immediately regrets it and pulls out, right? Yeah. And that's what makes the structure so strange, is that... She decides to go to Europe and then is like, oh, fuck this, and yeah. leaves and comes back. Uh, he, 
does the same thing. You know, he's so happy to see her, and then he's like, okay, let's go to Vegas. There's this kind of like, oh, I have a kid now. I should do something with a kid. No, I'm not going to. Um, she brings all these amazing farm animals into the yes. house, and then when she doesn't get the reaction she wants, she lets the ponies loose. There's just all... I think that's what makes the structure so strange, is stopping starting rhythms of people doing something and then backing out of it yeah, yeah. but I think there's something really human and beautiful about that uh, and the way that that informs the structure I don't know I like it yeah well I mean Cassavetes as a filmmaker was literally throwing himself into things mm-hmm. over and over again there's a I watched the the doc that yeah I'm almost weird. not crazy yeah yeah which is such a great phrase yeah applied to him instead of applied to to, to her yeah Sarah or Susan he has these rhyming names and these bouncing uh, Sarah Lawson is Jenna Rollins mm-hmm. and Susan is Diane Abbott yes yeah. and they are so casual with names mm-hmm. I mean, Cassavetes is introducing himself as Robert Harmon with his full name constantly yeah and everybody else just sort of becomes this jumble of sound around him mm-hmm. and uh, it, there's the, the clip in the doc where he's uh, shooting the ballet sequence, the, one of the yeah. fantasy sequences, and says, you know, like, I'm not the director, I'm just an actor, I don't know what's going to happen next. Except yeah. that he is the director. Yeah, and he, this is an interesting thing I think about. So, around the same time, I saw that doc, and I saw the uh, Robert Altman doc, Ron Mann's doc. Did oh, you see yes, yeah, Altman? Altman. Yeah. And both of them were kind of like, they're directors that I thought of, they kind of present themselves as giving a lot of control to actors mm-hmm. kind of throughout their careers and it was funny because in both docs all of the on-set footage seemed to suggest the opposite right uh it seemed to suggest that he was very precise and he was sometimes in in both cases that they were writing dialogue on set but they were still writing it and kind of insisting that people perform it in a certain way there's a great thing in the Alman doc where he's on the football set of MASH right. and he's saying like you say this and then he turns his head and you just see him micromanage like yeah. when, when you see Wes Anderson on set or something like it, it was almost that detailed and it's just it, yeah there's something kind of revelatory about realizing like of course they have so much control of course they're you know they feel spontaneous in some ways they really are both filmmakers um, but they're not giving up control yeah and you feel it and Cassavetes is doing it too in the yeah. there's a tennis court sequence in yeah in love streams that's captured in the in the documentary where he's doing the same he's thing. He's writing the phone call. Yeah, running yeah. through half of the dialogue, but mm-hmm. only someone else's half. Yeah. Which is sort of incredible. Yeah. And also saying at one point how insane it is to watch people kick a ball around. Yeah. Which is true. I mean, it's, it's true. true. Yeah, you would never do those things with your body if yeah. not for the ball. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a really bizarre and beautiful observation. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's just how his brain works. I yeah. Guess. And yeah. I'm in awe of that because... You know, being an, being a director is about noticing and capturing and, and framing, and being an actor is about not thinking of any of those things. And somehow he managed to do it in the service of his own film. And of course, with Love Streams, it was after a diagnosis of cirrhosis that informs everything about the movie, but never explicitly figures in it. I yeah. mean, he's referring to throwing up in people's homes, and he looks like crap. He he he's. He's got good days and bad days. It's very clear. Yeah, from his he activity, looks unwell. Yeah, yeah, and he's still, it's there, and I don't know if it's there because Robert Harmon is unwell or because Cassavetes can't keep it from leaking into his performance. Mm-hmm. And 
looking at him as a director, of course he could have if he wanted to. He could have just not done anything like that. But then instead, it's all there. Like, it's this organic, it's this... How can I explain this? This sounds so weird. Watching the movie this time, I, I found myself thinking about a movie I'd recently seen called The Creeping Garden about plasmodial slime molds, which are these massive, basic organisms. They live under moss and grounds. It's, there was an episode of The X-Files where it was swallowing people and making them hallucinate. They're not that complex. Right. But they are gargantuan, and no one knows what they do, but they do something. And that's what Cassavetti's illness feels like in love streams. It's there. It's always there underneath everything. It's in the film grain. Mm-hmm. But the movie is so much not about it, and it's so invested in life and in this constant flailing and staggering towards, if not happiness, then at least being one's best self. Because Harmon doesn't, you know, he has this great long speech to his son about how he doesn't like men, he doesn't like women really. Yeah. He likes young kids, he likes kids, kids and, and old people. people. And you see it in the movie too, yeah. which is really fun. He kind of doesn't have time for people his own age. Yeah, yeah, which would mean he doesn't have time for himself. Yeah. But he doesn't, but he does. But it's just this, everything in the film is this, yeah, um, it's a constant push-pull of desire is the wrong word. I don't even know what it is. I don't know that they know what it is. But when Robert and Sarah are together, it stops being so much of a thing. Yeah, so, there's peace a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not entirely. <laughs> yes, the creative I think it really, it really only... They're not actually that unified for that long, emotionally. Mm-hmm. Like, they kind of do have these little spurts where they, they, like, they have that beautiful slow dance by the jukebox, and then she mentions... Susan called and right. he recoils. Yes. And he tries to put her to bed like she's six. Do you, I don't know yeah, if that's yeah. the same scene, but there's another scene where he's like, just just go to bed. And she's yeah. like, I'm not tired. It's 9 p.m. Um, but I think it's really when she starts to get worse that he seems to stop caring about everything else and really just want her to get better. Yeah. And then it's the same thing. He calls the doctor and then immediately banishes the doctor. I'm not entirely sure why, except I guess he wants to try and fix the problem themselves. They believe they can get through it just by loving each other and supporting each other. Mm-hmm. And then, basically, she leaves right after yeah. that. Um, I was reading the um, Dennis Lim essay that's in oh, that, yeah. and uh, he, uh, he mentioned something that I hadn't thought about, which is that both him his character and Jenna's character, what they collapse and then people love them more after. It's something I hadn't really thought about, but it kind of happens with her in the bowling alley. Mm-hmm. And it happens to her when she has her big episode with the doctor where all of a sudden um, he's so invested in, in, in her and her well-being. Mm-hmm. It's a strange motif. I'm not sure that I totally understand yeah. what's going on there. I don't even know if the movie knows it's a motif. Or with Susan as well, right? Yeah. He collapses down. That's one of the most bewildering cuts to me is when he, you know, he he's dry, drunk driving and he falls down and his head is bleeding and he tries to adjust himself with his handkerchief and then he collapses and the whole time she's just like rolling her eyes. Yeah. The next morning it cuts to her by that window and she looks completely in love with him. Yeah. <laughs> it's so mystifying. Yeah, there's that and there's the the other moment where... What is it? The it's the scene where where Albie has his total breakdown about just wanting to go home mm-hmm. and 
and Harmon refuses to apologize. Yeah. I told you I was going to Didn't I say that? that? Yeah. yeah. To yeah. an eight-year-old, which is not something you can do to, with an eight-year-old. And it's still kind of a terrible thing he said he was going to do in yeah, the first yeah, yeah. <laughs> Leave him in the hotel. And so. everything that follows is miserable for Albie. He takes mm-hmm. him home, and the door won't open, so Albie harms himself. Yeah, in a similar way. Yeah. He's got the similar and after, head. And after that echo, there's still the scene where he chases his father down and says, I love you, don't leave. Yeah. It's the... The constant need um, of the supporting characters for these characters, which yeah. I think is the same way the movie sees them. It mm-hmm. can't, like, it has to be about John Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins because they are the ones making the movie. But at the same time, it the movie seems to know the film, the the, the direction, the script. They're not people you want to be around for very long so they're constantly making parties to get people to come close to them yeah uh, Cassavetes like Cassavetes the actor the director is paying this crew to be around him yeah but Harmon is paying his girls to be in the house with him yeah he's writing checks to them mm-hmm. it and it's never further defined we never really find out what it is no because again I think the structure of the movie kind of mirrors the way that characters process their lives so I feel like he doesn't give them a lot of thought except when he's asking them questions about you know whatever about the weirdest things but presumably informing his writing or his understanding of people or women or something Mm. I don't know but uh, because his whatever his arrangement is I feel like is not high on his priority list you don't fully understand it yeah. because he's never mentally that focused on it, and I think that's just an interesting structural choice. Yeah, yeah. But and I don't know what he what he's asking them. <laughs> yeah, and and or for what purpose or, or yeah. to what end? There's a there's the you know I'm almost not crazy is a great line for for Sarah because it's relieved and she's saying it as a as a sort of a happy kind of affirmation mm-hmm. she's almost there yeah i've got good news I'm uh, almost yeah. Crazy. yeah but the, <laughs> after the luggage yeah which is the craziest yes we have just watched her carry <laughs> which two cab loads of luggage back and forth <laughs> to paris and england and then back through london yeah and then and yeah that sequence also just is so amazing and it Again, going back to like the idea of what people think of Cassavetes is doing or not doing, there's so many things in this film that are strange in the context of his body of work. Yeah. I feel like the, the opera sequence is high up there. Yeah, he's sure. never big on fantasy. Yeah, but there's dream sequences and and other hallucinatory sequences and that weird dream of the car accident, which where is she an kill, accident, she, she yeah she kills she, her own ex. Yeah. That's a really strange one, and the slow motion of the car going over that yeah. that shot feels kind of out of character. Yeah. Well, you can't think of many stunts in John Cassavetes. Yeah, films. like, I guess Gloria has some, but yeah. Oh, that's true. And, and uh, Seymour Cassell jumps off the uh, the roof in, I think it's in Fences, um, which Cassavetes had him do a number of times right. just to see if he could land better. Yes. Yeah. That's how he explained it. It's like, the camera's not catching him landing, yeah. but I want to see if you can land better. That yeah, was their yeah. relationship. Right. Um, yeah, it's funny to feel that, like, the... Not direct references to his other work, because I guess he... I don't know if he would want to do that, but maybe without realizing it. Maybe his illness, something he feels like he's doing, I don't know, yeah. summing up something. He there's, Yeah, a valedictory quality. It yeah. definitely feels like like that's happening. And there um, you know, the, the some of this, the impulsive decisions that Sarah makes feel like they're right out of Mabel and Getty's life. Yeah. Or maybe something else... You know, for Minnie and Moskowitz is it's like seeing Minnie there. and Moskowitz get divorced there is that too yeah, yeah like just by nature of the casting right and and it being Cassavetti's house yeah as well like their house um 
that's been in a couple of the films too. I, I guess yeah, it just can't help but evoke yeah. all the other ones. That's a that's a conversation I wish someone had had with him about. You know, when you and and I suppose the same could have been asked of Wells and people who and I guess Henry Jaglin shoots stuff in his own yeah place and Woody Allen did it with I think it's Hannah and her sisters is mostly filmed in I didn't realize that, yeah. I did that place. too I, I don't recommend it but I, do. <laughs> I was gonna say it can't be easy <laughs> no. it must be incredibly disruptive it's a nightmare <laughs> and uh, it's hard to watch your film after and not for me anyway yeah I don't know how those guys feel about it but yeah it's hard to watch it and not think about that <laughs> yeah oh that uh joss whedon did it with much ado about nothing oh right 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 yeah, yeah yeah and he said that it was yeah he found gaffer tape and and gaffers sometimes just in rooms that they shouldn't have been in because yeah. you have to open your entire space to people yes and yeah it's like having a party that never ends and that you can't you know, you're already pretty tired of yeah <laughs> that's 14 hours a day or yeah, yeah, yeah um yeah i don't personally recommend it. there are much i have much better party ideas than that yeah. um but yeah i yeah that's i guess that helps it feel personal um it's also this is a maybe superficial thing but it's so you if you shoot in your house i guess you can plan the shooting all the time right you know, if you know a space so well, and I feel like I've fallen into this a lot, where mm-hmm. in like if I'm writing a high school thing, I picture my high school because I can oh, just yeah, imagine, sure. you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's especially with him, with the films being so personal, with it being them who live there. Maybe the planning never stops. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, certainly. When was I? How do you react? How do you act arriving in a home that you live in? Yeah. How do you how do you be a new person in a space? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I guess in in this one, it's hard to know. I mean, I find the casting choice so interesting because it's a pl- platonic relationship between the two of them. Yeah. That is the only kind of real meaningful relationship in his character's life that is obviously his wife. Yeah. yeah. I'm not and sure what that means or... Yeah, and on stage, apparently, there was more of a... I think Lim mentions it in the essay. There was more of an incestuous vibe between the two of yes. them. They were definitely more dependent on one another mm-hmm. than they are in this film. Yeah. There is this very goofy stuff mm-hmm. in a way, like, I think the not broad, but the closest to broad that he got, that I've seen, anyway. Um, Casavetes, yeah. Yeah, in, in, in those kind of slapstick almost sequences with the luggage. And yeah. she's yelling at the French guy in English with a French accent, hoping yeah. he'll understand. Or Spanish. She Lisa, yeah, she says muchos bago. Yeah, listen to me. <laughs> That's how she's going to communicate. Yeah. I don't know. It's very funny, but uh, it still has that uh, frantic, desperate, emotional quality yeah. to it. But it's goofy and all this stuff. There's this running motif as well of kind of nonplus taxi drivers. Mm-hmm. Who yeah. just do whatever and people they're waiting, <laughs> they're waiting constantly. There's or lifting the luggage to the second floor. That's right. So they keep going. There's this running. It feels like a running gag where they keep they'll, the, their conversation is happening in the foreground. John and Jenna, and then a taxi. Two taxi drivers will come by with something huge again, yeah. um, or with all the farm animals as well. That's right. He's this, trying I, to move the goat through the space. Yeah. And I noticed the, for this time uh, the, the Criterion disc has enough clarity. Yeah. That you can see that there are two guys, probably grips or stagehands, holding the animals on the other side of the cab against right. uh, what looks like a wall or ivy or something. Yeah. Hope trying really hard not to be noticed. <laughs> yeah. 
What was the um, first time? What was your first experience of it? Of Love Strange? Yeah, when did you first see it? I saw it on a plane, but it wasn't on... The, the plane wasn't offering that. I don't think. Yeah, so this was before it got re-released. It was a pretty crummy version of it, and I watched it on a laptop right. on a plane. So this is probably the VHS version that got out. Maybe, yeah. Because I think somebody burned a DVD of the VHS, which is always a good move for clarity. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I've definitely squinted, and, you know, there's just the the room tone of a plane yeah. in the background. and But I was incredibly moved by it and taken with it, despite the circumstances. Um, it's kind of intense for a plane. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. That's how I saw it. But I knew it had been on my list for a long time. When did you first see it? I think I saw... I mean, I know I saw it theatrically. I don't remember when. It was oh, in the yeah. late 80s, maybe. Yeah. Uh, either at the Bloor or the maybe the Paradise? One of the, one of the rep theaters in Toronto. Um, I was already on a Cassavetti's kick before mm-hmm. the, um, I don't know if you heard the Woman Under the Influence episode that we did with uh, No, I haven't. It's really good, first of all. She's, yeah. She was terrific. Yeah, I believe that. It's a perfect that. choice. Yeah. Um, and in 92, I lucked into a press junket to Los Angeles. It was my first trip to LA in the summer of 92. I went to the AFI because Disney had acquired the rights to the Castle Hill films, the five movies, Faces, Shadows, Opening Night, Chinese Bookie, and Woman Under the Influence, mm-hmm. and was releasing them on VHS and Laserdisc for the first time. Right. So they sent me a videotape of A Woman Under the Influence, and the next day I was on a plane to Los Angeles, and we got... We were four journalists. I think there was someone from The Times maybe someone from the Sun Times and then me and the guy from Tower Records in-house magazine Pulse and we were divided into two round tables of two people each with one table was General Rollins and Peter Falk and the other table yeah and the other table was Al Raben and Seymour Cassell and we got I don't know half an hour 45 minutes with each of them because this was 1992 and nobody else was there and it was the best day of my life that yeah uh, it was fantastic it was just fantastic and the um, the experience of talking to you know just Al Raban had all these amazing stories he was the producer he shot opening night yeah. he, he appears in it briefly he's the unit production manager for at least two thirds of the thing and he'd been working he and Cassavetes had worked together all along mm-hmm. on their own productions and he had stories about the fluid nature of direction and improvisational approach and the energy that that Cassavetes would bring and then Seymour Cassell would interrupt him by telling the story about jumping off the roof and fences. Yeah. He's like, I break my fucking knees for you, John. Yeah. Like, yeah, you would. You would. You you see that level of commitment that he brought out in everybody he worked with. And this would have been... This is the thing that's unthinkable to me. He died in 89. This is only three years after his death. Mm-hmm. Um, so it must have been incredibly raw for everyone, too. But, yeah. And Rollins was was just effusive, ebullient, just amazing. This life force. I've, I've had the good fortune to meet her a couple more times and interview her properly and also just be at a dinner with her once yeah you just she is incredible um and she is the person that she is in love streams uh in that she can't i mean she can of course hold herself together and conduct herself like a person yeah but she'll just get excited and start sputtering ideas Mm -hmm. when she's really engaged in conversation and it was just amazing to watch that part of her that I'd seen on screen come out of this regal, poised, intelligent woman who is also just over like over the moon about art and Mm. wants to talk about the things that she did. Yeah. Um, The scene where she 
the scene in Love Streams where she meets Jim the dog for the first time, uh, and she is unable to keep her terror down. Yeah. Jenna Rollins has no problem with dogs. Yeah. She's faking it. Like, right. That's a performance. And it's... It's so good. It's so real. And funny, too. Yeah. Like, whoa! Like her yeah. quick recoiling. Exaggerating. Yeah. It's very funny. Um, yeah, that's... Jim... Jim the dog Jim we should dog. talk yes. about at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Jim the dog is... Uh, I mean, he's introduced in the early on as a human being. Yeah, he, if, you, if a, you give him love and, you know... He will reveal himself to be a wonderful human being yeah. or something. And then and he certainly does. Kind of happens. It reminded me a little bit, this is a strange comparison maybe, but do you know the, the Kids in the Hall sketch? The night I connected with my oh, dog. Oh, yes, the terrier, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It felt a little bit like that. <laughs> That's the night that Robert Harmon connected with his dog. Yeah. Um, and everything is falling apart. I've had that experience. You're a dog owner as well. Yeah, when yeah. You've, when you're like, it, you realize that it's just another person when you get each other yeah, yeah you're like i care about this guy yeah so i have a dog as well um that is one of the most beautiful representations of that that i've seen in addition to being again very strange and funny yeah the the pace at which it's revealed yeah it's true it is it's just this really weird dry joke in the film yeah and he's hacking coughing laughing for a long time before we even know just saying who the fuck are you yeah, yeah. Uh, it's very funny um, yeah I don't know I don't know where that came from yeah. I, I heard I think this is also in the limb essay but that that guy played the dog on stage is that right oh, that would make sense uh, in a way <laughs> I, don't, I don't know but maybe it, I'm wrong because um, that's a dream I had how would you do it now like what would you there, there's no there's no room in love streams for magic realism, except yeah, that it but, absolutely belongs there. When but it happens, there's so much magic in it. Yeah. Like it's there's so much strangeness and um, I don't know. Things work out. Things don't work out. But <laughs> I don't know. There's a, like poetic logic to things, and yeah. things are convenient in a way that's narratively satisfying, even though the narrative is so, as we said, kind of erratic. But yeah. Yeah, it's emotionally satisfying even when it is completely unbelievable. You don't know what it, the hell's going on, right? And mm. I've found myself uh, every time rooting for her and the guy from the bowling alley. Oh yeah. To be happy together, but every and I always feel that this is beautiful. But I, there's no reason because she's not, a. She says she's going to go back to to see more Cassell's character to her to her marriage that has not asked her to return right and in fact is repeatedly saying I don't we're not married anymore yeah that's what I want you to take after the kid look look after the kid but that's it like kind of articulates it's there is that that same thing about reaching out and pulling back yeah it does kind of say at one point I would like you to come home but he clarifies immediately yeah yeah. (laughs) not because of me yeah it sounds like he's desperate it sounds like he's sad and then he suddenly has to explain oh but I'm this isn't no 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 yeah 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 it's such a strange naked emotional place to find yourself where all you want is to be understood and you can't understand yourself Mm -hmm. and I think everybody except Jim has that moment (laughs) Jim is himself absolutely Jim yeah Jim stays Jim but uh, but yeah Roger Ebert's review is all about how everything that you see and do everything you see and hear in the film is a cry for help yeah no one else can hear yeah showing up with the animals is only funny if you don't know her yeah and by the time it happens in the movie we have an understanding of these people and 
there is no possible way this is going to work out. Yeah. I mean, her whole her whole impulse about getting the animal starts with, I'm going to buy you a baby, which is yeah. not a sentence a person should utter <laughs> to anyone. It's a, yeah, it's a little alarming when yeah. she first... <laughs> and he rolls with it because yeah. he loves her. And his, his response is very measured. Yeah. It's very like, don't, you don't have to do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and even to the animals, like, he's kind of like... You can tell he's not thrilled, yeah. but he's not. Same as the taxi drivers. Yeah, he never says he's that. not he like, what the that. hell is going on? Yeah. Nobody ever really does that in a way. And it, and I love how quickly he gets on board, especially at the end during the storm. He's kind of like, I'm take, I've taken care of the animal. Right. You know, oh, this goat is impossible. <laughs> he's, he's just like, I don't know, he accepts them. <laughs> it's funny, the, the, you know, the, uh, that line, um, I'm almost not crazy, is... Yeah. is, is Maybe the key, but I think the other one is the thing that he says early on to his secretary slash partner slash enabler, whoever that woman is supposed to be to him. He says, "Don't try to organize me." Yeah, and that's love. That's love streams in a nutshell. Just not only the larger metaphor that people keep coming back to about what love is and how it is this intertwining. You know, you can't you can't dam a river. Really, you can't. The water has to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And the idea of organizing the emotional flow of this movie is self-defeating yeah it's going to go wherever it goes yeah and that rain at the end is part of it right like that's that incredible torrent of whatever is happening in their world externalized it yeah it definitely feels like it right and it feels like her decision to go back and try to make love work yeah even though she's the only one who has it yeah it can't be separated from the fact that she's heading off into a storm and his decision to remain kind of cool to all the relationships in his life it, it does seem like that's represented with shelter a little bit yeah. in that sequence and then yeah the end of the movie <laughs> is literally just him waving yeah. goodbye at you <laughs> yeah. it's Which, really amazing from from inside the shelter yeah while and the storm is out there it's heartbreaking like it really yeah. is um he's i think it means he's happy I think it means it's okay. Like, I want to take as that away as because it, yeah. as far as he knew, this was the last movie he was going to make. It feels like it, right? Yeah, yeah. that ending. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the next movie he did make was one that, you know, Big Trouble, yeah. nobody really owns, and he only he took it over as a favor. own it. Yeah, yeah. he watched Sands of it while it was in post, I think. Yeah. But if this is his sign-off, yeah. like, it's, it's quiet. It's calm with that storm. He's, mm-hmm. still, he's still okay with it. Like, this is fine. I've done what I've done. Yeah. And it's weird and heartbreaking and encouraging. And I had this bizarre existential moment. I even tweeted about it. Uh, where I got the... I was just thinking about how old they must have been at the time. And I yeah. got the years wrong. And for a second, I'm 48, I thought, well, if they were in their mid-40s, how is it possible that they've lived this much and felt this much and know this much about about humanity mm-hmm. and I'm still you know yay Star Wars movie yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good uh, <laughs> but um, how is that even a thing like this that level of emotion and someone else pointed out it was a darker harder world to grow up in I think and my generations had it relatively easy and then I realized I was wrong I was 10 years off they right. were actually in their mid 50s mm-hmm. but I'm 48 yeah. So it's still like it's still a matter of five or six years. It's yeah, it's surreal to imagine these people having this much, just the sheer feeling, the sheer intuition. Like, these are people who 
we're always artists all the time. And mm-hmm. it just feels so strange and poetic and heartfelt for a piece of American cinema in the 70s to be as precise and as exacting about emotional relationships as this is, even though all that other stuff was going on, you know, like all the, the new American cinema was happening and had happened. But Love Streams feels different to me. Like it stands out in a way like in 1984 that this could happen. Uh, and even then I was just getting the years wrong again. Vietnam was long since over. But they lived through all of that. And these characters don't have any... But even the earlier films like that would have been happening during that period. Well, stuff like Women of the Influence. Yeah, and even Faces. Like, Faces is pretty mature, and it seems like they've seen some shit. Well, Shadows. Shadows, too, yeah. That was was late 50s. He was barely 30 years old when he Yeah, It's He's always been that good, I guess is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) He's always been that good, yeah. Which is stunning. And then Mm -hmm. to see see this last one... Um, that does seem to sum everything up yeah, and feel it so profoundly. And, you know, the answer is he doesn't have the answer, yeah. which is so weird to try to state like an artistic statement. Is yeah. You make this movie for two hours and 20 minutes <clears throat> where people are just fucking up like, yeah. constantly. Yeah. But they're okay with each other. Mm-hmm. Like, that's That's the thing I come back to is that the relationship between the two of them is is never really in doubt. It's ne- there, there's nothing either of them can do to drive the other away. Yeah, and I, maybe there's some peace at the end that comes from accepting what you can and can't change about people. Like, because mm-hmm. I feel like she does try and get him to be more open with other people in his life, um, and. I don't know, and he also wants to stop her from going back to this marriage that is, in fact, over. Right. But there's this kind of, like, oh, if that's what you're doing, yeah, good yeah. luck, kind yeah. of. Yeah, they support each other through all of yeah. it. Yeah, and there's a feeling of, um, at the end, like you said, a feeling of, like, well, this is what people are like, this is what life is like, I don't have the answers, and then literally waving, bye. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's incredible. It's really quite a, I mean, it's one of the great... If you view it as his final film, like a lot of people do, and I think he would prefer, um, that is one of the great endings to a final film. Yeah, that I know of. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. It's, I guess, that's the thing that stuns me every time is that he knew it was a movie. Like he knew this was going to work as cinema because it really doesn't. It doesn't even have the rhythms of his other films. It just no. doesn't have a. It sort of has a three-act structure, but it doesn't have a narrative drive. It just goes places. Yeah, it's a. I mean, that structure is very strange, and I think again, like, um, it's that that weirdness of the structure is. Yeah, like I said, I think really in harmony with what's going on. And a great example of that too is the the entrance of his son. Yeah, which is a classic kind of trope of self improvement. Right? right, is yeah. you're a, How many movies have we seen? Yeah, you're a crazy bachelor ladies' man, but then your son turns up. Yeah, here's and, a fully formed eight-year-old. Yeah, and you've got to grow up to be the parent he needs. Well, no, yeah. I'm no, going to Vegas. first thing he does is ask him <laughs> if he wants a beer. Yeah, he, can, he promises him breakfast right. and only delivers the beer, I believe. That's and right. those scenes are heartbreaking almost in like, yeah, just watching the kid rush to clean up. That's he's right. so eagerly like picking up ashtrays yeah. oh. and and playing with matches, literally playing That's with matches, right. lighting cigarettes. He's it's it's horrible. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of and it's there's something 
I love when films or books or plays or whatever do this where they subvert your narrative expectations to kind of reveal something about people that's yeah. different than the way art has kind of conditioned you to think about them. I thought um, recently, I thought, did you see Manchester by the Sea? Yeah. Kind of a similar thing. It comes where there's a, a trope, times, right? Like, the, of like, oh, he's got to raise this kid, you know, and I don't want to spoil Manchester by the Sea or yeah, anything. But, but it, that's one of the things that a character is faced with. Yeah, and it and it's sort of your expectations for that are not met in, in, mm-hmm. in a lot of cases with that film about how people are supposed to act in certain situations. Um, yeah, it's funny. Um, Lonergan came up a couple of times watching this. Yeah. Um, just not only is the relationship between Robert and Sarah kind of an echo of, of Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo's characters in You Can Count On Me, where they're just, no matter what, they're complete disaster. Well, he is, and she's yeah. trying not to be. Yeah. But they're there for each other constantly and, and fully. Mm-hmm. There's that. There's the sort of lost kid stuff in there as well. Yeah. These children are just sort of drifting away from a sane parent. Yeah, and, and Lonergan's very good at um, <coughs> in the plays and in the movies at making you care about everyone equally yeah everybody kind of a Renoirian approach to like making you understand where everybody's coming from and making you love selfish people mm-hmm. uh and understand yeah, them like they're your kids or something like you 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 can see where they're coming from and i feel like that in love streams because neither one of them their characters should have a child probably that's <laughs> true um it would be better or pets yeah. Really, like even, I'm a little nervous. Even a goat. Yeah, even a goat. A goat is impossible. But uh, yeah, there's something you kind of you want her to be reunited with her family, but when you actually hear about it, it sounds kind of horrible. Like she's doing this peculiar Patch Adams type thing where she's yeah. <laughs> entertaining the sick. The first time you hear about it in that courtroom scene, it's like. She just says in an offhand way, I won't take you to as many funerals or something. And you're yeah. going, what? Yeah, that can't be. That's what? a metaphor. Yeah, you're like, period. what does she do? Like, for mm-hmm. a second, right? And uh, so you don't... The fact that she insists on her daughter being at the divorce hearing is incredibly strange. Yeah. Whether it's leverage with her ex-husband or something, I don't know. But it's it, it feels very selfish. And, like, it would be destructive to the kid. I notice he does this a lot with both... Uh, her daughter and uh, his son, where the camera just moves away from the action and just focuses on how it's affecting the child, the, the yeah. child in yes. a really great like visual way. Yeah, you can watch damage happening in real time. Yeah, when she collapses uh, outside the um, the hearing and 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 her daughter rushes to her, it kind of just moves back up and seeing the daughter process. They do that a lot with his son as well. Mm-hmm. I noticed something the last time I watched it. Um, he likes to uh, separate people visually a lot. Yeah. He, it's a lot of singles. Yeah, there's a kitchen table shot that really struck me this time where it's just Roland's. Yeah, it's that one, And his hand right? creeps in every now and then. Yeah. yeah. It's the one on the cover. It's the one on the cover, hands. yeah. And there's a similar kind of echo of it in the courtroom hearing I noticed. I hadn't noticed that similarity before, but um, Seymour Cassell's hand holds the daughter's hand, That's and it's right. the same thing. It's just an arm. Yeah. Um... I was there's something I'm sure to be made of that of I mean, the fact yeah. that people are going through these things separately but it together. has to be deliberate you can't yeah. that's like that's an accident you don't keep if, if you yeah don't yeah he's yeah no I mean certainly those compositions are no accident I I'm of the belief that he didn't make a lot of uh, mistakes um, but Al, yeah Al Raban had me feeling like there was a great deal of luck yeah uh, when he was talking about shooting stuff and working with him the 
that they would find something and fix on it. Yeah, the, there's some of the best lens flares in That's, that movie. Yeah, yeah with um, uh, Susan's mom dancing, and it kind of does. I guess they do this kind of thing in opening night too, a bit where the the lights are over her head and yeah, kind of blowing just out in the audience's eyes almost. Yeah, and he got he very amazing luck with these, or not luck, I don't know, but with these um, almost punch drunk love ish, like those big blue. Yeah. lens flares that happen just on a window and you can't really figure out how that's happening what's causing just a blue bar in the middle of the frame but mm-hmm. it's very beautiful and strange looking hmm. yeah he's very good Al Rubin he doesn't get enough oh it's true credit as a, even though I think a lot of people consciously emulate the style of Cassavetti's movies he, he's somebody that I, I don't hear many people talk about yeah I think he's still around I hope he's still around I hope he's he still around do, yeah yeah so the um, the the rap question on the on the show is always the same, which is you know what of love streams or or Cassavetti's work in general, I suppose in this case, have you absorbed or or stolen or incorporated into your creative DNA? Like how has the film turned up in your work? Um, I guess it's all it's again going back to what we were talking about before. Maybe that stuff will be more apparent to other people. Like I definitely know some things I stole. Mm-hmm. If anything, I think. Uh, there is a intuitive way that he structures things and shapes things mm-hmm. that I, I believe has kind of liberated me a little bit to think, okay, I can, I can have someone stop, start something and stop in the movie and that's okay. Right. Um, I don't have to, not everything has to pay off in a conventionally satisfying way if it feels emotionally satisfying. I think yeah, and not shying away from messiness, um, visually or narratively or thematically. Um, yeah, I, I think stylistically, I haven't done something that's that looks like his films. I don't think, but um, I is would be. That, is that interesting to you? I mean, would you want to? Because um, your films are very. I. I of what I've seen of them and and of of dim the fluorescence there's a there's a sort of a to describe them as linear is not the right word but there's a there's definitely a composed formal feel to them that that I don't think of when I think of John Cassavetes mm-hmm. you know like there's not a lot of handheld there's not a lot of yeah um everything everything seems to be in its place right. things are where they need to be yeah in your in your stuff um I think, like, I, I've i come at things from a sort of Truffaut-Hitchcock approach. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of, you know, my a big part of my film school. Right. Not literally, but figuratively. Right. Um, and I definitely designed things as sequences in my brain. Um, I've also only ever worked on movies that had no money. Okay. So spontaneity always finds a way in regardless you don't actually get to be alfred hitchcock level of control when you have no money so i always yeah i always tried to control as much as i could and let those other things interfere anyway and they always do but if it's not apparent to you then that's okay (laughs) that's my secret but uh yeah i mean i think it's always just based on the project however i think something should I don't know. I, I don't have any like strong uh, um, adherence to a movement or anything. I I uh, I, I think Cassavetes, however he gets there, 
And as I said, I'm not entirely... I've read a lot of interviews with him. I've seen some of this stuff on set and heard other people talk about it. I'm still not entirely sure what his process is for actually visualizing a movie because I think the way that he structures things visually is perfect, too. Whether he arrives at it organically or or with a lot of prep or a bit of both or it depends on the sequence um, is hard for me to know. But I, I, uh, I think the goal is just in both cases um, is to just maximize whatever you're doing, the impact of whatever you're doing on a cinematic level. And I think our methods might have been different. I I don't really know what his are, but I love his films. If I did something that legitimately reminded somebody of him, I would be very flattered. Um, So, yeah, there's there's definitely no desire for me not to do something (laughs) like his work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you just throw a goat in the next movie. Let, yeah, well, let people find it. They're let hard people. to wrangle. <laughs> the movie is tough. I can see that. Yeah. My thanks to Daniel Worth, whose debut feature, Dim the Fluorescence, makes its world premiere this Saturday, January 21st, at the Slamdance Film Festival, repeating on Tuesday, January 24th. If you're in Park City and you happen to be listening to this, you should check it out. It's really good. You can find Daniel on Twitter at Mr. Daniel Worth, all one word, and Mr. is just Mr. And you can find Love Streams on Blu-ray and DVD in the Criterion Collection in a typically terrific special edition. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review up on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Maybe you want to mention the 100 episodes thing? I think it's kind of amazing. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.